What happens when two bass road warriors spend quality time talking music and life with one of their peers? Bassist educator author David C. Gross and bassist and head honcho of KnowYourBassPlayer.com, Tom Semioli, trade eights with the legends of rock, jazz, funk, blues, folk, country, and more. Notes from an artist. Revealing conversations with the legends who've created the soundtrack of our lives. What happens? You're about to find out. It's another episode of Notes from an Artist. Welcome back to our listener for another thrilling episode of Notes from an Artist. I am Tom Semioli, and you, sir? I am David C. Gross, and to our wonderful listener, welcome once again to show number 112. Wow, you're actually keeping count of these things. They're very impressive, very impressive. I'm into math. You're into math. Well, fasten your seatbelts, folks, because our topic is the new Bob Dylan book entitled Mixing Up the Medicine. It is out on Callaway Books. It is over 600 pages, over a thousand photographs. Ye gods. Several essayists covering every aspect of Robert Zimmerman's career. Uh, the source of the book is Bob Dylan's archives in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And our guests are book publisher, Nicholas Calloway. The book is out on Calloway Books. We also invited Christopher Parker, who is Bob Dylan's longest serving drummer. We'll talk about Chris's musical background in the show. And no stranger to us, David, but the first time on our show, bassist Rob Stoner, who was Bob Dylan's musical director for the Rolling Thunder Review. Now, Tom, one of the most interesting aspects of this particular interview is the fact that this book is so chock full of information and our guests were quite easy at bloviating about these things. We didn't even talk about music. It's no, amazing. We did not. There's so much more to Bob Dylan that it almost became music was incidental in a strange way. Yeah, well, I got to tell you, the conversation does jump all over the place, just like a Bob Dylan song. And to quote Bob Dylan, David, you and I were just sitting down on his bank of sand and watching the river flow. Amen. So we, we let the insane take over the asylum. Uh, great memories with Rob Stoner and Chris Parker of actually working with Bob Dylan. Great insight from Nicholas Calloway about how this book was put together. This is a must-read for Dylan fans. And David, our playlist is going to be spectacular because not only are you going to hear Bob Dylan with Chris Parker and Rob Stoner, we're going to hear uh, many of Bob Dylan's most significant influences. Correct. As well as songs done by other artists. Without further ado, let's get on. Bob Dylan, mixing up the medicine. Well, welcome to the I show, gentlemen. Do you, we all know each other. Nicholas Calloway, he goes under the name Zoom Calloway. That's, his, um, <laughs> that's, that's, my, that's my Zoom handle. Yes, that's his Zoom handle. Uh -huh. All right, David, for the sake of our audience, let's introduce everyone. Nick, Nicholas, meet Rob. Christopher, meet Zoom. <laughs> a pleasure, Rob. Christopher, anyway, a pleasure. So we have Nicholas Calloway on the show. David, he is a 21st century Renaissance man, if you ask me, despite the fact that the Renaissance, I think, was in what, the 15th century? <laughs> yeah, a little uh, behind the times. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Tom, I was saying that the Renaissance, when you were just a kid, that's right. Nicholas Calloway is the CEO, head muckety muck of Calloway Arts and Entertainment. You see the connection with the name there, David. Calloway Books creates, designs, produces, and publishes illustrated books and multimedia products. Is that correct? That Calloway? is correct. Yes, yes, indeed. Now, you guys, you published the Madonna Sex Book in 1992, yes? Yes, did put, we did. You, they put that book out, David. And if you, if you happen to have an extra copy, but you can uh, visit Calloway at www.calloway.com and we'll obviously post the link on our podcast and other platforms. 
Chris Parker is with us, David. He's a drummer. He's a composer. He's a recording and performing artist. You've heard him with the Brecker Brothers, Bob Dylan, Elvis Costello, Paul Butterfield, Cher, right? You did the big hit, If I Found Someone, right? That was you, Chris. I found um, someone <laughs> Yes, he's a fine artist, and he also worked with my old bandmate, John Sakata, and everything you wanted to know about Chris Parker, but we're afraid to ask, can be found on chrisparkerdrums.com. And of course, last but not least on our contestants, we have Rob Stoner. He was a true rock and roll zealot. He is a <laughs> recording and performing artist. He's a composer. He's a band leader. He's a multi-instrumentalist, David. You know him from his work with Don McLean, right? American Pie. And of course, you were the musical director of Rolling Thunder Review, Bob's Rolling Thunder Review. And we got a lot to say about that. And you also made great records with uh, Link Ray and Robert Gordon. I have to say this, if it wasn't for Rob Stoner's work in the Rolling Thunder Review, I wonder if we'd be here because it was the Rolling Thunder Review that turned on my generation, I was born in 1960, to Bob Dylan because in the mid-70s, Bob Dylan, to me and some of my peers, was the 60s. It was all about the 60s. That's what our older brothers and sisters listened to. And then the Rolling Thunder Review comes rolling into town with a very punkish, aggressive veneer. And that kind of complemented what we were hearing with Springsteen and Patti Smith and all those artists. Anybody agree with me on that one or no? Totally, man. Bob was becoming a museum piece act, a historical reenactment. Or actually, he didn't really have much of an act uh, until he revitalized. He, he went back out on the road with first with the band in 74. Right. And, and then the next year after they stopped working with him, he hired me to put his thing together for him. Yeah, that's where we come to uh, Mixing Up the Medicine, which is the new Callaway book. Uh, 608 pages, David. A thousand images and over 135 photographers contributed to this. Nicholas, the, the source material is mostly from the archive of Bob Dylan Center in Tulsa, yes? Exactly. I think it was mm -hmm. 2015 Dylan sold his personal archive to a, an oil man from Tulsa named George Kaiser, who had bought the Woody Guthrie archive. Archive. And the archive and center opened in 2021, I believe. And so this book is the first book done using material, most of it unseen and unpublished, from Dylan's personal archive. So it's uh, sort of the Tutankhamun's tomb for Dylanologists. <laughs> Rob, you haven't seen the book yet? No, dude. How can I get a copy? Uh, I'm gonna send you. I'm gonna send you one. My man, thanks. Uh, you'll, it'll it. probably bring it'll bring back lots lots of memories because mm -hmm. there's a big section on Rolling Thunder Review. Oh, great! Well, thanks for mentioning but, me. Well, and if you could inscribe it, I would really dig that. Oh, I, I it would be a pleasure. But thanks, uh, thanks. I appreciate it. So, anyway, so yes, it's um, the archive in Tulsa has several hundred thousand items: original manuscript, lyrics, typewritten, his early notebooks when he arrived in New York. Over, oh gosh, I think there's over a hundred thousand photos, and the I mean, it's a real treasure trove, and it's amazing that when one realizes that Dylan kept everything he was a pack rat yeah uh, yeah he had warehouses that he used to stash the stuff in really yeah well so he must have had a sense of destiny very early on no 
Yeah, yeah, he knew. <laughs> so I think in God. one of his one of his interviews in uh, No Direction Home, he said, "I knew I was operating." He's he talking about his early career. I knew I was operating in an area where no one had ever been before. How interesting! Uh, it's a direct quote when he's that is a, that I hadn't remembered that from No Direction from, Home. Yeah, No but, Direction. So the book is, I think we can safely say it is. Well, there are over two thousand books on Dylan, and Whoa. I know that from um, the, a collector here in Greenwich Village who has every, every oh my god every one of them and part of whose collection is now going to the archive in Tulsa. So we can, I think we can say without exaggeration, that this is the most comprehensive book ever done. Kudos uh, to you, brother. Thank you. Well, you probably know better than anyone what a miracle that is, just the fact oh, yeah. that the book exists. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and we're also saying, in, it's not only the most comprehensive book ever done, it's probably the most comprehensive book that ever will be done because, you know, nothing like this is ever going to be undertaken yeah. again. <laughs> although, yeah. although one of the most fascinating fascinating things we realized we th this book has been seven years in the making um, Callaway came in four amazing. years ago four years ago but as we're completing the book because i recognized that there was an opportunity here with this unique and massive archive to have a in-depth portrait of dylan we call it a biography inside out because we're seeing his whole life and work through what he himself created so for instance, the end papers are the first typewritten manuscript of subterranean homesick blues, Very which cool. he was composing on the typewriter. And you can see all, you know, all the X marks. Oh, I've seen him work like that on a typewriter. It's astounding. It is astounding. And yeah, so, yeah. so it's a very exciting thing because. Yeah, I think it's the first book where we are really doing a very deep dive inside yeah. this monumental artist through what he himself created. That's the uniqueness of the book. Talking about the Rolling Thunder Review now, of course, we all know this Scorsese documentary, mockumentary, <laughs> fictionalized the story. And what I love about this book is it tells the true story of what happened, uh, how the Rolling Thunder Review came to be. Now, Rob, I remember when we talked previously you said Dylan had this idea way before 1976 when you know him from the early days on Bleecker Street in Greenwich Village in the folk scene. True. Not only was he talking about it then, but both Danko and Robertson each told me that he had been talking about doing a traveling carnival multi-act vaudeville, if you will, variety show. When uh, for as long as they'd known him too, it had always been a, pro a well, project. It's it's amazing that you mentioned that because in No Direction Home, maybe you remember one of his earliest memories from Hibbing is the traveling circus coming through. Yeah, right. And I wonder if that's when the seeds were planted. And in a way, you know, Rolling Thunder mm -hmm. Review is it grows out of those early primal memories. Yeah, and uh, you remember the bogus radio interview he did, one of the early ones, where he he said, "Oh, I was in a traveling carnival." <laughs> That's, yes, exactly. So, so it's was... always always been like one of his fantasies, and so he brought it to life. Exactly, yeah. and and th these kinds of connections, you know, yeah. uh, are the great thing that whether it's having Scorsese's documentary or our book or the archive in Tulsa. Yeah, sure. To be able to make these deep connections and correspondences that help us to understand yeah. where these incredible things come from. Yeah, so, there's, there's photographs of the Rolling Thunder Review that I had never seen before. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Oh, you're well, going to love this, Rob. Now, nice curation, nice curation, man. 
Now, uh, the ro the writer for the Rolling Thank Thunder View section was uh, Joy Harjo, I believe. That's right. Um, yeah, and I think it, she mentions that, uh, Rob, you were introduced to Bob by Bob Newworth, but you actually go back farther than that. Oh, I knew him way before I knew Bob Newworth. Right, right. What yeah. year did you meet? What year was, was it in the village? Uh, yeah, in 71, I became a member of the Greenbrier Boys. Yeah. Oh. And wow. Bob Dylan used to be their opening act. Yeah, I know. When he first came to town. So, I mean, that was 10 years before I worked with them. That was like, you know, 60, 61, when he, was, when, when he used to be their opening act. They were a huge folk phenomenon, and he was just an up-and-coming nobody. We, we've got a picture of him with them in the book. There you, there you go. So <laughs> the leader of the Greenbrier Boys, John Harold, hired me to go on the road with him. And uh, at uh, several of the gigs that we did, Dylan came backstage to say hi. He went to go check on his, you know, somebody who, who from his past, from his formative years coming up. And, Amazing. Uh, and that's when I got to meet him. And and fortunately, <laughs> when I was in the Greenbrier Boys, uh, John Harrell, the leader, would let me do a section of the show as bluegrass bands often do, they feature, you know, this guy and then that guy. And so I did like three or four tunes. And so Dylan witnessed me working a room, holding a crowd and playing and singing, you know, telling jokes, all, you know, all the entertainer shtick that, you know, people have to oh. do to work a room. Yeah. And so he knew that I could do that when we were hanging out backstage. And later on, we went to a hotel, a hotel room. We're hanging out and jamming. We're talking 71, 72. Right. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, hey, man, you know, we're going to do something together someday. You know, I took that with a grain of salt because everybody says that, you know, oh, it's, you know, it's like we got to we got to stop meeting like this type of thing. <laughs> and so um, I really didn't think anything of it, except it was, you know, kind of a complimentary thing for him to say. And so I was just surprised years, a few years later, he called me when he needed somebody, when he's when he'd stopped working with the band and he was casting about looking for some right. New blood to be his backup. I was uh, the cat who got the call. Amazing. What did he say when he called? He wanted me to come down to the studio to see what was wrong with his album. Really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I had no idea he was in the studio making an album. I knew he was around town because I'd see him around every so often. And I saw him I saw him at one of my shows checking my band out, the Rob Stoner band. And um, you know, we renewed our acquaintance. Actually, he kept in touch with me over the years. Uh, mm -hmm. through people we knew in common. Oh, I'd see somebody we, who was a mutual friend. They'd say, oh, Dylan says hello. I'd say, oh, yeah, cool. Mm -hmm. But then the, the first real actual vocational thing that he sent my way was uh, for me to come down and troubleshoot this Desire album, which was going nowhere. Uh -huh. I went to, the, went to the studio on 52nd Street and uh, watched them floundering around with these tunes and getting nowhere. And, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't even bring an instrument. I just went to... Uh, to observe as as he had asked me to you actually were part of and also got to see him in the creative process yeah exactly he, yeah what he was, was that using, like what was that like it was a little unnerving because nobody really had it together including him interesting which is why the thing was floundering and so he just i could see that somebody had to take charge the producer was just a suit from the company don devito he didn't really he, he was not a hand he, not a hands up hands-on record guy Mm. Or, or production guy, I should say. Mm -hmm. Somebody had to crack the whip there because there was uh, just a confusing bunch of, uh, mm. of nothing going on. Have you seen the Rough and Rowdy Ways tour? Have you? Have you? No, no, no. Uh, have you? I, I saw it last night. I saw oh, it yeah. at the Beacon. 
Uh-huh. And now, how was he? I well, I think it's just a miracle that he still is with us, you know. Yeah, and right. and and I had seen him at the at the Capitol right before COVID, you know, and and you know before that, it seemed as though his voice was pretty much shot. Yeah, and I was so surprised. I think one of the things that happened was during COVID, he had a chance to rest his voice because he wasn't touring, right? And he was doing, as he still is, a lot of sculpting and painting. Yeah, and I was so shocked because his voice was just so good. In some ways, I felt, I felt it. I mean, and continuing as he did last night to 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 evolve it to just sing in a different way. I mean, you must know the members of the of the band, the Rough and oh, yeah, Rowdy sure. Tour course, yeah. band. But they're, 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 I mean, in fact, you know, I've, you know that uh, the the Robert Gordon band, which I spent forty seven years playing in, was the farm team for for Dylan's band. Uh huh. Ten New York players who've been in and out of in and out of the Robert Gordon band, who eventually wow. ended working with Dylan. Well, the, it was just extraordinary, and you know, he he played only keyboard, the Baby Grand, and and I think it's in part because I think it's hard for him to stand for long yeah. periods of time. So he plays with a stool behind him, so he can sort of prop himself up. But his keyboard playing. To me, it was just phenomenal. Well, I'm glad he, he stepped it up because for a while it was uh, it was kind of just a prop. Well, definitely not a prop in in okay. at, well, at. I guess at this he took point. he took some lessons then. That's good, good for him. Too. Well, it almost feels it almost feels that way because it's very very. Um, he actually said he was introduced to members of the band and he thanked them because he said this is not easy music to play. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> and interesting. And the thing that was really great though. He, he never picked up the guitar, but the last song, he played the harmonica. And so it was, people, you know, people went nuts <laughs> hearing him play that. Yeah. And his harmonica yeah. playing is maybe better than ever, you know? That's, yeah, well, he was, uh, that was always one of his great tricks to pull out yeah. that harmonica, you know, Ooh. save until, uh, until the show needs a little goose. And then well, he did. In his pocket and people go, whoa. <laughs> That's exactly what he did last mm-hmm. night. And the best known song that he played was You Gotta Serve Somebody. And everything else, people don't just don't know the song. I mean, he didn't play any of the iconic songs. Yeah, just deep cuts, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's that's his thing. He's, Bob is not a jukebox. No, yeah, makes a point not, of not. Now, doing, Christopher, not doing Christopher, you yet. started with Bob on the uh, Interstate '88 tour, and that was with uh, G.E. <laughs> Smith, Kenny Aronson, and yourself, of course. That was a quartet, but no uh, Robert it, Gordon people, right there. There you go. And it was a very stripped down thing. Now you guys just have a few years on me. I I came to Bob obviously in the Rolling Thunder years. Christopher, you said to me when we chatted on notes from an artist that you weren't that familiar with bob's material when you started out with him but can you recall christopher and nicholas the impact that like a rolling stone blowing in the wind i mean this was a revolution a musical revolution in the early 60s oh yeah well please christopher you you should you should uh enlighten us chris what, what was that like when you heard like a rolling stone i mean how, how did things change how did rock music change from being music for teenagers to grown-up music <laughs> <laughs> like a Rolling Stone and Blowing in the Wind and Times Hair Changing and Highway 61, those those are the ones I was familiar with. But I wasn't familiar with the later period, you gotta serve somebody and that first bunch of albums, I was familiar with those. Rainy Day Women, Blonde on Blonde, that album, and I just wasn't a I wasn't a fan. And I knew that songs and the bands that I was in played like a Rolling Stone and we played the Times Hair Changing. 
I tried to get him to play Maggie's Farm and uh, <laughs> Blues, but the you know my band guys said I ain't playing that shit. So, but until uh, until the first rehearsal at Montana with uh, it was actually T Bone Woke the first time. That was the first time that I really heard him sing the songs, and I heard a lot of songs that I had never heard before. You know, one more cup of coffee, and uh, some of the really longer ones and more obscure ones. And other ones, you know, Boots of Spanish Leather and um, Tangled Up in Blue and stuff like that. I said, oh, yeah, I remember this. He was singing them a completely different way, which was really right. fresh. Like, part of mine, I had heard the record and I didn't, it didn't knock me out. But it, the version he did at this rehearsal, I said, wow, this is great. I love this tune. And we did it a bunch of different ways. But I really became a fan. By the end of the first day's rehearsal, I said, this guy is fucking amazing. <laughs> And um, not so much the electric guitar playing or the acoustic guitar playing, which was also amazing, but the poetry. I heard the poetry for the first time and it really hit me. It, it had never hit me before quite like that. The words to Times Air are changing and blowing the wind are, of course, amazing. But uh, some of the other poetry really hit me and astonished me. And then the once we got out on the road, the acoustic guitar playing, the harmonica thing with the orthodontist nightmare, and the uh, electric guitar playing was also killer. The singing was amazing. You know, he was only, he, uh, he was like 48, 49. He turned 50, I remember, at one point on the road. He was singing his ass off and phrasing his ass off, you know, like Frank Sinatra or like Ray Charles, uh, waiting for the chord change to go by for two or three beats before he hit that lyric or anticipating the lyric before you got to that chord change. Same kind of um, vocal imagination and creative reading of his own lyrics as Frank Sinatra would do a Sammy Kahn tune. Really fascinating. Wasn't it the song Peggy O that got you the... Uh... Gotcha, the gig, because he was impressed that you knew Peggy O, and that's in the book, yeah. <laughs> I also knew Barbara Allen. He said, oh, yo, you know this one. I said, oh, yeah, Barbara Allen from the uh, Alistair, Alistair Sims Christmas Carol scene, you know, at the end of the movie when he is Wow, wow. Yeah. Which is well, the I best version of Christmas Carol, and more importantly, it was my first intro into the bass clarinet which is uh, one of my favorite instruments because the Jacob Marley theme was this <laughs> boo, 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 boo. And I tell this every time I tell this story. When my daughter was very young, I used to tell her that Jacob Marley was in our attic. Oh, <laughs> traumatize her forever. <laughs> yeah, now she just asks for money. So there we go. You were at a very important part in Dylan's career because like Rob Stoner in 76, Dylan was off the radar in 1988. He was floundering at that point. You're right. The Interstate 88 tour, which is so well documented in the book, is the beginning of Bob Dylan's never-ending tour, which he's still on now. So we finally, in this book, we get to see the roots because as is mentioned, uh, Nicholas, Bob had an epiphany on October 5th, 1987, and in Switzerland, and he decided to re reinvent himself, and that's when he did the Lean Mean, G.E. Smith, it was Kenny Aronson that took over the bass chair, and Chris, and that was the actual beginning of his never-ending tour that True. continues until what you saw last night. 
Absolutely. I feel, you know, people ask me how long this book has been in the making, and I say 58 years, <laughs> because I saw Dylan at the Academy of Music in Philadelphia on February 24th, 1966. I was 12. It was sort of the, uh, you know, the rehearsal for the UK tour. Uh, he headed from there over to the UK and was the Don't Look Back tour. But I was very fortunate because my father was a folk music fan. So I, by the time I'd seen Dylan when I was 12, I guess there were, what, three albums out, maybe four. And I'd been listening to him since I was eight. <laughs> and of course, as we know, he really became famous for the others who were covering him with Peter, Paul, and Mary, and and the Birds. Cher had a big couple of hits, right? Cher had... Yeah, Sonny and Cher, A&B, yeah. babe. So anyway, for me, I'll never forget it, because at the Academy of Music, he was wearing that giant houndstooth suit, and three-quarters of the time, he had his back turned to the audience, and it was just him and acoustic guitar, and just became just... I mean, imagine being 12 years old and seeing yeah. that <laughs> in 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 66 mickey so jones on drums i'm sorry there was no mickey. no it was it was him solo on stage oh oh, oh he didn't have any accompaniment none zero because he used to do a half and half show around that time too well this one was all solo great now after doing the book and a lifetime of being such a great admirer, I feel like he's even greater than I have felt all of my life. <laughs> I think it's, and I realized we could have done, we probably could have done 50 different books of the same depth and they'd all be different. That's how deep the work is and how yeah. vast it is. How it, multifaceted his career has been. It's quite, it's really, I, I don't think there's anything like it in our time. Rob Stoner, your father, of course, iconic American photographer, Arthur Rothstein. And you share many of uh, Arthur's images on social media. It's great. Every day I, ch I get the Rothstein biography in my, in my uh, Facebook feed. That's, that's, my sister curates that. Okay. Your father is a photojournalist. You know, not only did he witness history, but he presented history to the world. When you started working with Bob Dylan, who had such a profound effect on American culture, and he sang about the America that your father took pictures of. Recall it. What, what was it like for him? What did he think of you working with Dylan? Well, he was a fan of Dylan because Dylan was operating in an arena that was uh, parallel to what my dad was doing in terms of visual yeah. art and photography. So he appreciated that. In fact, when he when I first introduced him to Bob backstage at a gig, they immediately got into a discussion about the role of art, the creative arts, in helping social change come along. Wow. What year was that when your father yeah. met Dylan? Uh, that was backstage at Madison Square Garden in 1975, December. Right. Well, your father was one of the greats. And uh, as I... You know, a lot of my career has been publishing photographers' work yeah. and worked, you know, published many of the greats, but he was amazing. I think that you're absolutely right. The cultural milieu of Dylan and of your father and the social, so, the, the, the first social conscious photographers, WPA photographers, yeah, you know, uh, Walker, yeah. Walker Evans, it's yeah. all of a piece. And one of the things we try to do is, I mean, the book has 1,200 images in it. Wow. And, and it, it actually 
and there's 135 photographers. So as someone who has made, who has sort of been involved in photography and books all my life, I feel that the book is also a portrait. It's kind of eulogy of an era in America that is, of course, now gone. And of which Dylan was, he, he, he grew out of that same matrix. Yeah. And we make some connections in the book. For instance, Sean Willens wrote awesome. the introductory essay. Yeah. Yeah. And he makes these really interesting comparisons between he between one of Dylan's recent paintings of the of the American West on being on the road, and uh, we juxtapose it with uh, a Robert Frank picture from the Americans and a still from Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times, walking uh -huh. down the road. I don't think we've yet understood all Dylan in the really in the context of twentieth century. W 20th century American history. Yeah, well, it's, it's we, good that you're here to make these, make these connections. You know that Woody Guthrie's Dust Bowl Ballads album, which was a big influence on Bob Dylan, features my dad's photograph on the cover. Oh, it's fabulous. How amazing. How amazing is that? I mean, I never told Dylan any of this. I, I figured, you know, eventually dad would come to a gig and I'd, t I'd introduce them then. That'd be a nice mind blower for both of them. Wonderful. We just last Friday interviewed an author named Jesse Rifkin who did a book called This Must Be the Place. And it discusses New York going back from the folk era. But what was most striking, particularly in relation to this conversation, is the fact that when Dylan and his cronies, so to speak, started playing folk music, the people who were playing folk music were pissed because <laughs> they didn't think it was the original folk music yeah, they were total purists right, they were total right. purists well the other thing is of course the great sort of watershed moment is considered to be you know 65 newport and him going electric but one of the things i learned that i didn't know and i think a lot of people don't is that folk music was the second phase of his career he was a rock and roller as a teenager good, good point the golden chords the golden chords it's in the book we have a little <laughs> ad for the golden chords i, I met we, those guys man they would come to gigs <laughs> <laughs> so his heroes were uh, Buddy Holly and Little Richard. That's right. He knew and all those tunes. When you would jam with the guy, he'd play as he he'd had that entire repertoire down. Which is why so it's it always been so bizarre that when he strapped on his electric guitar, people were outraged. Yeah, yeah, really I know. It's, it's ironic. So it's ironic. ironic. It, was all, it was a nothing burger. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good, good point. Yeah. You know, the folky purists being pissed off at the people doing original music to the same uh, original <laughs> lyrics to the same music is totally analogous to the church people being upset at Ray Charles. Yeah. You mentioned Newport 65. What I love about the book is there's all the conflicting views are there. You have Maria Muldor's take on it, Peter Yarrow, Al Cooper. There were sound problems. I never heard that story that there were sound that's, problems. That's our, oh, that's yeah. our, our Rashomon spread. We wanted to give all the different perspectives because right. there's no agreement on what really happened. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the things that comes out. And of course, in 65, sound systems were primitive. They didn't even have monitors. Oh, man. It, it was, was a folk festival, with, for and, God's and sake. We, we all know to this day, man, outdoor gigs are terrible for sound anyway. Indoor concerts sucked. 
in terms of sound systems and, and and PAs and no monitors and shit. You take that outdoors, it's like a shit show. Yeah. On the board, you know, there's a guy with a Radio Shack, a uh, little sixty yeah. watt PA amplifier, and I think I think Dylan, in in a way, is the ultimate contrarian because as soon as he got pegged as this or that, you he know, did, he, he was, did something else. He was doing something exactly. else. Exactly. He didn't want to. He didn't want to get put in a bag. That's one of the things you can track through the course yeah, of the yeah, book yeah. is how he continued to do that until today i mean i feel like he is singing and playing now in a way that he never has before it's a it's a new mm. phase at that late yeah, yeah. in this wonderful yeah. late flowering uh yeah. and and some of the songs from rough and rowdy ways i think are as great as anything that he's ever done i mean the, sure. well, he's, he's got that formula of taking classic melodies and putting his own poetry to them yeah work for himself. Well, one of my favorites from rough and rowdy ways and he sang it last night which must mean he likes it <laughs> is uh mother mother of muses and it's just i think it's one of his great songs yeah, yeah. another clue to to him changing his act which he did regularly every Every time it started to get to be too old was the haberdashery. You look at pictures of him throughout his career, you notice he changed the lid every yep. time he changed yep. his, his deal. He sure did. Yeah. He sure did. Yeah. Wearing a different hat. That's right. <laughs> Literally. Chris, what were you wearing on stage with Dylan? I, I knew you were in, I, you were out of the spotlight when I saw you with Dylan. But what was your dress code? He was staring at his behind. Well, we know that. Rob, that's really fascinating. I think that's a tremendous insight, the the image of the hat. I've and, always and, noticed and, that. Very insightful. And last night, he ended the concert and put on his, hat, his, his white hat. Dude, the hat has always been a major statement. Part of that mask dealio he talks about all the time. Well, remember that first hat was that little sort of... Yeah, yeah, the little uh, communist worker thing. <laughs> Woody Guthrie type deal, right. Yeah. Now, was he first or that, or was Donovan, or was John Lennon? Who, oh, who no, did no. that hat first? No, no, well, we have a spread, John Lennon's version of it. Right. And Dylan's were, no, Dylan was first. I think he started wearing it within a couple months of arriving in New York and was it six the winter of sixty-one yeah, yeah. and going to see Woody Guthrie. I think he started wearing that. I don't what I don't know is where did he find that hat? Where did it come from? You know? Probably on Orchard Street. <laughs> Orchard Probably yeah, on Orchard Street. The best place, the the most cost efficient way to get your stage costumes together. I would think so, yeah. And then afterwards, you go to Yona Schimmel's Knish, and that's yeah, man. Where you go. We're talking songs here, and oh, wait a second, Christopher, what did you wear on stage with Bob Dylan? He had us wear suits. We all got suits, uh, double-breasted suits. I think they were from London. You know, Susie Pullen measured us, and we went to a tailor, and everybody got a black suit. I was the outfit: black suit, white shirt. He wore whatever he wanted. You know, Susie yeah. always dressed him in uh, something wild, something crazy. Not yeah. too many. So it's usually, you know, it's open, open head. Yeah, I, I rarely saw a hat. So I don't know what that means. But we we wore suits. All right. Yeah, I, yeah, I can see that. He does that now with um, his current band, right? Uh, uh, Nicholas, they're pretty well dressed. I think they got yeah, polo they, they, ties. They have uniforms, suits. yeah. They're, they're not in suits. They're, I mean, they're not, they're, but, they're but not it's, all dressed. But it's uniform same. stuff. It's what? It, it's all uniform stuff. I remember before we did the 78 tour, he said, I don't want people going on stage in their street clothes anymore. Wow. And that was, the, that was the first time he started having the band go to a tailor, get measured, and then the tailor would show up. With well, let, let, let's go to that tour because that's another one that's documented in this 
this book that I've read little about elsewhere. It's and it's El Corona with a new release. Right, the Budokan tour. Yeah, and yeah. you were the MD for that. And that was, it's a fascinating story about how Dylan completely de deconstructed his repertoire. He did. He, I guess it, the story goes, Rob, that he had to do his hits in Japan for something he signed contractually. Correct. So the promoter, the Japanese promoter, had heard that Bob was doing a lot of uh, deep cuts. He knew that the, uh, the his his crowd wanted to hear the hits. So Bob said, "Well, if that's what I got to do, I'm going to have as much fun with them as possible." So it's not like I'm doing a jukebox deal. So we tried to figure out how we could make each song as unrecognizable. This was the beginning of the whole unrecognizable reworking the tunes every tour trip that he got on was, was when we were sitting brainstorming the 78 tour stuff. Is there a reworking of a classic song that you think is better than the original? Yeah, sure. Any of them. Bob Dylan's song is just a snapshot. It's a Polaroid taken in time. Right. It's how he felt on that particular day. I've seen this because when you go out and do a gig with him, he'll do the same song like five different ways, different feels, different meters, different tempos, every, everything. Change different key, man. He'll change the words even because he's always just trying to be creative with it. He doesn't want to be bored and he likes to keep him guessing. Chris and Rob is a rhythm section. How the heck do you keep up with that? Just got to like listen. You got to watch him and listen. It's just being on your toes. You know, this is the same kind of shit that Miles and all, all yeah, the jazz cats sure. used to do also. And it's basically like, if you're good enough to be up on stage with him, you're good enough to follow whatever he does. I mean, Monk would count up a count off a tune. The, the people who played with Monk said, we didn't know what the fuck tune it was. We here. Oh, it's a B flat. Okay, good. And you know, then suddenly this, they, they figure it out. He had a jazz improvisatory approach. To, Ex exactly. To so, so it's nothing new. It's 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 a stump your stump the band thing, which kind of sucks. <laughs> but it's also a challenge. There's going to be an occasional train wreck when this happens. I mean, it's inevitable. Basically, it's it's cool because it gives the leader freedom. Whether it's a jazz dude or whether it's Bob, Bob Dylan's the only rock cat I know who does this. Everybody else, they got set lists, and they, you know, it's the same way every fucking night. It's like a Broadway show. Or something, but uh, Dylan was more into the uh, the jazz ethos of the uh, improv, improving yeah. the set, improving the tunes. And another thing about the book, of course, with all the thousands of photographs, we do learn the origins of Mr. Tambourine Man. Now that was inspired yes. right by Bruce Langhorn's Tambourine. Bruce Langhorn. Now, there's a picture of Bruce Langhorn in the book with the tambourine. That's right behind it, but. We've only seen edited images of that photo because you see Dylan at the piano, and I've seen that picture a thousand times, but when you pan back, you actually see Langhorn in that's the booth right. with his tambourine. That's, I think that's got to be yeah. the first time that's ever been published. It is, as far as we know. I mean, most of the images in the book are previously unpublished, mm -hmm. unpublished. And the question is, how is it that he kept the tambourine? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And it's now and it's now in the Bob Dylan archive. But also another valuable part of the book is, again, the, the essays that make you want to go back and hear Down in the Groove, uh, Knocked Out Loaded, Under the Red yeah. Sky, and Rediscover Them. And I, I always implore everyone to check out Budokan. I think that is just one of the most yeah. fascinating albums. How can a band absolutely deconstruct Bob Dylan songs? And in many instances, you know what? They rival was or surpassed to my ears anyway, the studio version. Do you know that Sony Columbia has released a career spanning greatest hits tie-in to the book of the same name? The album is called Mixing Up the Medicine. Right. And it, it's yeah. the 50th album. <laughs> yeah. It stands to reason that the longer an artist lives in the song, 
the more he can bring to the dance. Yeah. And yeah. and therefore, each reworking going to be, I guess, superior to its predecessors. I mean, maybe you caught lightning in a bottle a couple of times along so the versions along the way, but it's going to keep improving because the yeah. guy just de- keeps developing his trip as he goes along. Again, more tidbits. We learned that Johnny Cash meets Dylan for the first time at Newport in 64, and he gives him his Martin guitar, which is the country tradition of passing the torch. Yeah, that's right. And yeah. Bob was such a huge fan of Johnny Cash, so that was yeah. that's a pretty significant moment. Think of how influential that was on Dylan when he did Nashville Skyline and John Wesley Harding. Those roots go way back. The fact that he met Johnny Cash in '64 and they were we have correspondence between the two of them, so it's uh, it's special stuff. Well, one of the startling things about the book is the fact that, as you say, there are 2,000 other books. So how much more information could there possibly be? Yet, there's so much more information. Great point. There is so much. I mean, you as I said, you, you could do 50 different books of the same scope, and each one would be different. Nicholas, you did this incredible book on the Beatles. You did this book, Bob Dylan. What the heck is next? Because I know even two years ago, when well, we were look, talking have, about the Get Back book, we were talking about the Dylan book. And right, when I well, saw, and it, it's funny because when I saw the premiere printing of this new book, I said, I got to get back in touch with Nicholas. He said it was coming out. And geez, what's next on the horizon? Well, and bold. well thank you for getting back in touch. And why don't you do it again in two years? Because we're working <laughs> on something that I can't say that we can top it, but we hope it'll be a worthy successor. For me, it's the the honor of a lifetime to have published this Dylan book. Yeah. Uh, it's still, and I'll tell you a little story. When the editor of Rolling Stone got an advanced copy, he called our publicist and he, he spent about a half an hour saying, how is it that this book exists? This is a miracle. It's not possible. <laughs> It's just not possible that this exists. And so I think it the fact that we were able to do it, and it was only thanks to hundreds of people who gathered together to make it possible in one form or another. I mean, the book would not exist without Jeff Rosen. And so we're. I, I think I felt if there was ever an opportunity to go all the way, put everything we got and everything we've ever learned about making books into it, and we hope that it's uh, in some small measure a worthy... Uh, tribute to him indeed well if there's two people in this room that need to write books it's not david it's not myself well david you've written a bunch of books but they're music right. theory books you don't want to read them. <laughs> i don't even want to read them <laughs> it's christopher parker and rob starter i mean you guys come on you've had amazing careers yeah, i, I know hope you're writing some of this we, down we know where the bodies are buried right chris <laughs> It's really amazing, too, for me, because I played with both of you. And, and oddly, we did uh, something. Didn't we do something at uh, West Point, Rob? Did, did we? That's where I go shooting now, man, at Transfer. <laughs> yeah, I think they wanted to shoot me, actually, when I was there. But it, it was so funny, because the first time I saw Spinal Tap, uh-huh. I went, oh, God, that's robbing me at West Point. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> but um, Christopher and uh, Rob, seriously, do you, do you ever consider publishing your memoirs or writing? Yeah, I've been working on it for years. Oh, is that all? Okay. Long, long, long-term project. Well, I know a good publisher I could recommend. <laughs> okay, I'll be in touch. I'm, uh, uh, I'll give you my address. Send me any okay, manuscript. <laughs> And, and Christopher, you yourself, you, you, I mean, I know you're a fine artist, but do you ever think about penning your memoir? Yes, I have a, a working title, A Drummer and His Bosses. 
<laughs> and I've got about 10 chapters, not really chapters, but kind of essays on uh, different people I worked with. Very cool. I was in Japan uh, three times this past year, and they I was interviewed each time about the band's stuff that I was in. And that might be a separate book <laughs> because there's such an interest or a separate book for just Japanese publication because there's so many fans of that band and and uh, imitators of that band, guys who have totally researched every note and every song and learned every mm. nuance of the group. Uh, it's amazing. And so I'm working on it. I'm working, working on it. All right, Nicholas. Well, there's two, a couple of weeks back, we had an author who did a book on Joe Cocker, and we were talking about the records that stuck Dang to right. them, and I said... Yeah, that's when Raquel's became a pain in the ass to go to. <laughs> right? You guys were so booked. It, it wasn't just sitting there and watching. It was like jostling to get in the damn place. Yeah. <laughs> All right, there we go, Nicholas. We've got your next two authors lined up for you. Ready to look at anything that either of you gentlemen pen. Thanks, man. All right. Please send me addresses and you'll be getting a copy of the book. There's a great there picture you. in the book of uh, Chris Parker with Kenny Aronson. Now, Rob, we've seen you getting your hair done by Mick Ronson. Christopher Parker, did, who did Rob? Who did Kenny Aronson's hair? Do you know? <laughs> All right. Was there, was there a, a, a special in the rider? Was there Aquanet? Did they have to have Aquanet too? <laughs> All right, gentlemen, thanks for being on the show. And yes, we'll definitely get uh, Rob and Chris the books. Thank you very much, Nicholas, for doing that for us. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an honor to be with all of you. And uh, thanks, wife, Tom, bro. and thanks, David. All right. Yeah, great to see you again. We'll Thank let you know when this airs and on the podcast and social media. And we'll see you guys again soon. All right. right. Thank you. Okay, Happy man. Thanksgiving. Thanks, thanks right. Chris. Thank you. Thanks, thanks Rob. Bye-bye. My goodness, David. What a conversation. And we could have gone on for days and days and days. But let's say thank you, David. Thank you, David. Most importantly, I want to thank Nicholas Calloway for his second time on our show. And if you are interested, his book, Get Back, about the Beatles, and this book, Bob Dylan, are two of a, a swath of incredible books. Callaway Books. Chris Parker, you too have been on more than one time. Thanks so much for participating. And of course, Mr. Rob Stoner, God, we go back a way long time. We go back to black and white photography. And one of the things, though, I really miss not talking about Billy Cross and that great band you had. We'll have you on the show. Yes, we will definitely have a Rob Stoner show. The material in our set list is just fantastic. But Tom, most importantly, where do you find us? Where do you find us? Well, if you are listening to us via our podcast, then you are listening to us on Apple, Amazon, Buzzsprout, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are potted. You can also listen to us live every Monday night, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on www.cygnusradio.com. You can watch us on YouTube. Do subscribe to our YouTube channel. And you can find out about future episodes and episodes past on our Facebook page, David. And you just look up Notes for an Artist, and there we are. We pop up instantaneously. That's it. We are a pop-up. And subscribe! Subscribe. And do follow us on our website, www.notesfromanartist.com, for all the latest and greatest from Notes from an Artist. Okay, David, let's get on with our massive Bob Dylan playlist. See you next week. <laughs>